Marissa Lee here, and I'm so excited to be sharing today's interview round episode with you. In these episodes, our brilliant lineup of guests will include healthcare practitioners, voice educators, and other professionals who will share their stories, knowledge, and experiences within their specialized fields to empower you to live your best life. Whether you're a member of the voice community or beyond, your voice is your unique gift. It's time now to share your gift with others, develop a positive mindset and become the best and most authentic version of yourself to create greater impact. Ultimately, you can take charge. It's time for you to live your best life. It's time now for A Voice and Beyond. So, without further ado, let's go to today's episode. I am so excited to introduce this week's guest, Jeanette Levetri, who is one of the most recognized and highly acclaimed voice teachers around the world. This is part one of a two-part interview round with Jeannie. In this episode, we have the honor of learning more about Jeannie and the journey which led her to a remarkable performance and teaching career. But most importantly, what inspired her to create the term contemporary commercial music in 2000? CCM, as we know it, is now widely used in academia, science, and research. Jeannie talks about those who inspired and influenced her learning of all things connected with the singing voice and how she constructed her pedagogical approaches, which ultimately led her to develop somatic voice work, Jeannie's trademarked method, which she created in 2002 and is now taught at Baldwin-Wallace University every summer. Jeannie is a true trailblazer and continues to work hard to instigate changes in the way CCM is viewed within the singing voice community. And what I learned is that Jeannie's success has come about from her resilience, curiosity for learning and sheer tenacity. I absolutely loved hanging out with Jeannie as she shared her stories, her struggles, and her triumphs. I'm sure you're going to love listening to this show. And don't forget, this is part one of my interview with Jeannie. And in next week's episode, we will release part two. This is a not to be missed show. So without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Well, today we are in for such a treat. Welcome to the show, Jeanette Levetri. You are an absolutely remarkable human being. You are a trailblazer. You are a legend. You are one of the most recognized singing teachers in the world, one of the most recognized faces in our singing voice community, and it is such an honor having you on the show. How are you? I'm good, Marissa. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. 
I couldn't be more delighted and oh. honored with the opportunity to share fun voice information. I'm always up for that. And um, I, I feel like, you know, my young self had no idea I was ever going to end up having these kinds of conversations. So it's always it's always fun. So thank mm. you. Oh, it's such a pleasure. We actually met in around, I think, either 2014 or 2015 when I interviewed you for my doctoral research. And you were a participant in my research study. And then I'll never forget the first time we met face to face (laughs) was in Florence. And I, yes, about 2015 at PVOC. And I was presenting the early results of my research on CCM and who's in the front row but the CCM queen, <laughs> Jeanette Levetri. And can I tell you, not only did I have butterflies, but they were I had butterflies flying in formation that day. I was so <laughs> nervous to speak in front of you. It was probably one of the scariest moments of my career. <laughs> But you were so kind and you always are so kind. Well, I feel like it's so joyful to see the next generation coming along, being enthusiastic about this idea of contemporary commercial music, being enthusiastic about training voices to sing all kinds of stuff. That's what any teacher wants is the next generation to carry on the work and go further. So I know people tell me I intimidate them, but it certainly isn't my intention. My intention is to be supportive and congratulatory because that's the only way anything is going to change as to yes. move it forward. Yes. I've, I wasn't um, so much intimidated that I found you scary. It was more that I was scared that I would say something that wasn't correct because you knew so much more than what I did. And you were leaps and bounds and, and you were like my rock star in in CCM and I didn't want to let the community down and you were there and and you were listening to every word and it was more about that rather than you being a scary person because we've met a number of times (laughs) over the years overseas in Philadelphia as well at uh, Care of Professional Voice Symposium. And (laughs) sorry, I'm going to sneak this little story in. Because well, I have one. I have another one. I want to stick okay. in also. Yes. I was presenting a workshop in the south of the United States. Mm-hmm. And the other person who had been invited to present was a man whose name was Oren Brown. Yes. Oren was a pioneer of mm-hmm. voice work. Yes. From like the 40s and was a teacher of Metropolitan Opera Stars. He was at our uh, Juilliard Conservatory. I mean, there was no one in higher esteem than Oren Brown. And I was going to teach in front of him. He went first and then I went. And I had the same feeling like, I hope I don't say anything wrong. I hope I don't, I hope I don't say anything he doesn't like. And at one point, he had this rich, low baritone voice. He said, um, Miss, Miss Lovetri, I, I think you mean the blah, 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 blah. And I said, oh, yes, Professor Brown. Thank you for correcting me. Thank you for that. And in my head, I'm going, ah! Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that would have thrown you? Well, oh. it was a little tiny 
I stated, I didn't state it as, as correctly as it could have been. Mm-hmm. And he was very gracious about how he made the correction. And I was glad he made it. But I also had those butterflies. <laughs> 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 so I, I understand. And he was yes. the nicest person you could ever know. So yes. I get it. Well, okay, Gina, so now what, what were you going to talk about? Oh, I was just going to mention, I'm going to try and make this really quickly because this is about you. It's not about me, but this does involve you. One time we were at Philadelphia and we were having a lunch break and the next session was the session I was about to present in. And you were there with your beautiful husband, Jerry, having lunch. And I marched over to you and I said, Jeannie, my presentation goes for 11 minutes. And you said, no, 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 you can't, you can't do that. This is my poor American accent. You, you know, it's eight minutes and then there's, you know, time for the changeover. And I said, Jeannie, I have traveled from Australia. I am not going to be cut short. I am going to speak for 11 minutes and you can ring the bell and you can do whatever you like, but I ain't stopping. And I remember your face and you went, Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this. And, I don't. Oh, and then there's the little light that goes from green to amber to red right. so that you know to stay on time. And right. you you were chairing the session with, with a European gentleman, obviously a classical singer because he looked yeah. very formal. And so I was presenting and in my peripheral vision, as the amber light turned to red, I could see him starting to get a little bit antsy and you put your hand over his hand and you stopped him. I don't remember that at all. You do- Oh, my gosh. Because I remember telling our good friend Irene Bartlett that yes. what I'd done and she couldn't believe it. And I just thought, well, that was my moment of being a brazen Australian. Yeah. <laughs> but it worked. I got my 11 minutes in. That's good. <laughs> that If you don't ask, you don't receive in life. That's what I figure. Yes. Yes. But anyway, Jeannie, let's get back to you. Okay. Let's start with you and you growing up. So did you grow up in a musical family? Was singing something that you started doing at a very young age? Yes. My mother sang a little bit professionally when she was young, but her sister was a professional singer with a big band. Mm-hmm. and traveled around in the United States with the big band uh, for, I don't know, a number of years. I don't remember. And then um, my dad had a nice voice, and he would sing when he was doing stuff at home. So singing was a very normal and natural behavior. And I can remember as a child, like uh, if I was in the tub, say, my mother and I would sing together. We would sing different songs that she knew. And so I just thought that was something that everybody did. Everybody would sing. It wasn't anything we fussed over. And then uh, I belonged to the Brownies. That's an organization yes. for from the Girl Scouts. It's for yes. the little kids. We had that. And here there too. was a meeting where the teachers had, uh, the children were allowed to say, what was their favorite activity or toy or what there was their favorite uh, thing to um, enjoy. And I decided that I would say it was one of my favorite things was singing. So I got up and I sang when Irish eyes are smiling. And I was probably about seven or eight. And I didn't think anything of it. You know, some kids were talking about their uh, bicycles or something else they had. And I sang and then I sat down. But when the meeting was over and the, we all, the kids went outside, my mother was there to pick me up and take me home. 
the, the women who were the leaders of the troops said, oh, Mrs. Lefetri, your little girl has such a beautiful voice and she can sing so well. And my mother was as surprised as I was because she didn't think anything about it either. Right. So from that, it was like, well, you know, the Lavetri kid can sing. Okay. So throughout school, as there was ever a time for somebody to sing something, they would point to me. And I, I was a little bit, you know, sort of not happy about that because it made me stick out. And yes. it wasn't always, you know, sometimes the other kids would make fun of me because of that. But over time, as I got into like maybe about 14, uh, we had a lot of chorus in school and I sang the solos and the chorus things. And um, people kept saying, oh, your, your daughter has such a nice voice. She should take singing lessons. So finally, when I was about 15 or so, my parents found a singing teacher in the area. And uh, we didn't have a lot of money. I mean, my dad had a low level job and my mother didn't work. So for them to pay for lessons was a lot. It was a big deal. Mm-hmm. But they, they managed to come up with enough money for me to start singing lessons. And the woman who was my teacher was a very lovely person. And I just went along and learned whatever she was teaching. And she told me I had to learn how to sing Italian art songs. And okay, whatever that is. Yes. And so gradually uh, went on. And then in high school, the town that we lived in was a very wealthy town. And they had very good public schools because of the fact that there was money. And the choir director of the high school had a big reputation and the uh, chorus had won prizes in competitions. So uh, he was one of the people that was encouraging to me. And the other music teachers in the school were saying, you know, this is something that you should really seriously think about. So when it came time to find out about going to college, I applied to uh, the two schools here in New York City that were music conservatories. One was Juilliard, which I did not get into. Mm. And the other one was Manhattan School of Music. Both schools are oh, still yes. here. Yes. And I got into Manhattan School of Music. And I had no idea, really, what a music conservatory was. Right. You and just the- felt it was the place to be. Well, the people who were knowledgeable, the guidance counselors and the others, they were saying, you should do this. And my parents didn't know any better, so we went, oh, okay. Okay. So I arrived at this conservatory and taking lessons there, and it wasn't a very good fit. Really? It didn't suit, no, it didn't suit me at all. Why was that? Um, oh, there were a lot of reasons. I think because I was very unsophisticated as a, as a, as a young teenager, I also wasn't particularly knowledgeable about what does it mean to sing classical music. And if there had been at that time a degree in music theater, then I probably would have been fine. Mm-hmm. But trying to be an opera singer was something that I don't think it was a good fit. Right. And my primary voice teacher was from Germany. She was a Wagnerian soprano, so she had mm-hmm. this big, huge voice. Mm-hmm. And she didn't know what to do with my little pipsqueaky soprano. <laughs> she was like, oh, well, you don't seem to know very much, dear. Oh, no, my gosh. You don't gosh. even know how to breathe. Ooh. My gosh. Well, that's really positive <laughs> reinforcement. That's a great way to teach. Anyway, I lasted only one year and then I quit. And my father said, well, I'm not sending you to any more colleges, so get a job. So I did. And I started taking ads in the local newspaper, classified ads. So if you were going to sell your bicycle, I'd take your ad. And I started to uh, go into the city for lessons privately 
And once a week, I'd come into New York and take lessons. That didn't go very well either. Really? Because the teach no, because the teachers that I found, which were, you know, asking somebody to recommend a teacher, they didn't really know what to do with me. And I, I studied with a woman who also had been a big opera singer. And uh, the woman whose lesson was before mine on a, a Saturday would come in on the train. She had the biggest, loudest voice you could ever, ever imagine. And then after her lesson was over, I would come in with my little, <laughs> oh, my gosh. And this teacher was like, oh, did you hear that woman whose lesson was before yours? What a magnificent voice she had. And I was like 19. and was like, yeah, OK. Uh huh. And then after a while working with her, one day she told me I had a deformed tongue. And I okay. was heartbroken. Because a deformed thought, tongue. Yeah. I thought, oh, well, no wonder I'm, I'm not getting anywhere. And why didn't anybody ever tell me that before? I, I mean, I'm 19 years old. I should have known that by now. So I, I was crying all the way home on the hour on the uh, train. And then somewhere in the back of my mind, the little voice went, that's crazy. And Thank I said, goodness. Oh, wait, wait, I, I've been singing since I was seven years old and nobody threw tomatoes at me. Maybe that's not what's going on here. So that was the first moment that I realized, I guess I'm going to have to figure this out for myself. Wow. Because some of these teachers said the craziest stuff. And uh, the one before, the one in between those two, she was like, oh, everything you do is marvelous, my dear. And so I'd go and pay for the lessons and I didn't learn anything because all she could tell me was how good I was. So I thought, that can't be. I mean, there must be lots more for me to learn, but she couldn't tell me what it was. So you had so, two extremities. You had one yep. teacher who was telling you how brilliant you were <laughs> and the other teacher tearing you apart. Well, so you know, know what? Either of those. Yeah. Had to be yeah. in between, right? Yeah. But you know what? In some crazy way, maybe it was just as well you had that other kind teacher because maybe you needed a little bit of that positive reinforcement somewhere, come from yes. somewhere. Yeah. And I didn't really have a lot of, uh, I mean, my parents were supportive, but they were uneducated people and they didn't really have anybody around that was educated. So I didn't have any support in that sense. Mm. And then there wasn't anybody who was musically around that was more knowledgeable. So I was always kind of past that point, I was on my own. And uh, I just flailed around and made my, my way as best I could. But eventually I moved into New York. And once I got here, I began to meet more people who were professional. And around that same period of time, I had been involved in music theater in the town that I lived in where the people doing it were New York professionals. They were Broadway professionals who lived in the suburbs where I lived about an hour. I was about an hour outside of New York City. So I had very good exposure to these New York professionals. And I started teaching other kids, young people, teenagers. And by the time I came to New York, I was 26. Almost immediately, I got some students and I was basically just saying what seemed like common sense, like, oh, you know, when you sing that, you should open your mouth more. Or, oh, you know, there's a way to use your breathing so that you can make your belly muscles work better. Okay. And, and just that was enough to help people. Okay. You know? So you were basing 
what you were teaching at that time on what you felt was working for you, perhaps? I was. I was just trying to do what seemed to me common sense and simple. Mm. And, you know, like, oh, well, you know, if you're going to sing that, maybe you should hold on to the note for longer. Nothing fancy. But if you're working with people who don't know anything and they're young kids, I didn't do, I didn't hurt anybody. Yeah. And I wasn't trying to produce great opera divas. I was just helping them learn music. And I did all right. Mm. Again, I was trying to go to, I was trying to take lessons. I was going to auditions. Occasionally I'd get a, a job. I did a big ensemble piece at Lincoln Center. And I performed with those people in different venues here in New York. And I began to meet people and get more knowledge about what was what. And really, the, the only kind of training there was was toward classical music. Whether you wanted to or not, that's where you went and you got your lessons. Or you just went to acting school or you became yes. a speech pathologist. But there wasn't any training that was aimed mm. at um, music that wasn't classical. So the, up until that point, when you had that classical training, had you been exposed to that music? Yeah. I mean, I sang all the things that, that you learn. I learned Italian and French yeah. and German art songs, and I learned uh, arias from opera and oratorio. And I sang in local churches. I sang at weddings. I sang in church when I was, I played the organ for 10 years. I sang before and after church. Pretty much here and there. I also was involved in a few more musicals in Connecticut. Then when I came to New York, I got on a few little off-Broadway things. Mm-hmm. All of the experiences that I had were all over the map. I did some of this, then I did some of that. I went over here, then I went over there. And everybody else my age was in college, learning in a sequential way in an academic cir- circumstance. It was very good that I didn't do that. Here, yes. It would have put me into that mold of the yeah. academic mindset. Yes. And first of all, I really was never comfortable with that. But secondly, it, it would have only exposed me to a certain way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Being on my own all the time and going from this teacher to that teacher, from this class to that class, from this performance to that performance, at the time seemed very chaotic. It seemed like, ah. Oh, Jeez, I can't go in a straight line. Ultimately, looking back at it, it was very good because it exposed me. I sang for five years with a Broadway-based gospel group. And when I first joined it, I didn't know anything about that music. But um, because I sang with other people for five years, I learned about it. Hmm. And I was never really a a singer that you would say, oh, I'm a gospel singer. But I sang in the ensemble with everybody in the background. I sang the artists at uh, that time, a lot of these people were uh, Broadway performers and sang for fun in these gospel groups. And then um, I was teaching young Broadway performers and started in 1980. So one of the, the first students that I had was in the revival of the musical 42nd Street. Oh, yes. And so once I started working with her, she sent me other people from Broadway. And so I was suddenly dealing with that. And everything kept moving around all over the place. And I always was at the attitude of, okay, let me see what this is. Uh, let me figure and let's out. figure it out. Let's figure it out. Let's figure it out. That's been my career too. I totally yeah. get that. And you've, you've been in the trenches, so to speak, because you've, <laughs> actually, you've actually done the work. So not mm-hmm. only, so you, you actually were living and creating those sounds 
and not learnt them out of a textbook. Oh, no. And when I first came to the auditions in um, New York for, for Broadway or off-Broadway, and they would say, well, can you belt? And I would go, yeah, yeah. sure. And I would I just sing loud because that's what I <laughs> That's do. what you thought, yeah. And and um, I was for a while, I thought, oh, good for me. I can do this. But then after a while, uh, I noticed that my voice was tired. Plus, at that same time, the classical people were trying to get me to sing more dramatic material, bigger, heavier roles. Mm-hmm. So I was pushing to sing and I didn't realize it. I mean, I did, didn't know that that wasn't good. And so the combination of the two things after a while, when I would go to use my voice, it had a lot of problems. And I started to feel very pressed about why can't I sing better than this? I didn't have enough information to realize that there was a reason. Yes. And none of the teachers that I had all of whom were very prestigious and well-educated, musically speaking, mm-hmm. actually said, you know what? You need to go have your vocal folds looked at by a doctor. Nobody said that. In fact, the last teacher said to me, oh, he said, I think you just need to sing new new material. And I said, no, oh. no. I said, there's something else going on. It doesn't feel right. He said, well, you sound okay. I said, well, I know I sound okay, but that something is not right. Didn't he feel said, oh, right. You're just being fussy. And oh. this was the man I had studied with for like six years. I mean, I was, and I thought, I can't explain it, but something isn't what it needs to be. And I don't know what to say about it. Mm. So again, I was on my own and I was 29. I'd been studying for 15 or so years. Yes. Some of these teachers were very famous, very expensive. Yes. And I was, I was lost, just lost. Mm. And I thought, well, if this is what it takes to learn how to be a good singer, I might as well just quit because I'm never going to figure this out. Mm. But then in the back of my mind was that voice, you got to sing, you got to sing. And my mother used to say, I want you to sing something for me. And I said, oh, mom, no, no, come on. I want to hear you sing. So I was walking around very depressed and having all kinds of problems with my throat. And then somebody said to me, you know, you should go to this thing called the Voice Foundation at Juilliard. And I said, well, what is it? And she said, oh, it's a conference and people present about the voice. You should go. Mm. So I was very broke and very depressed. And I had to really scrimp and save to get the money to go. But I did go. And then I came into this lecture hall. It was at Juilliard at the time. Yes. And they were talking about the larynx and vocal folds, and they were talking about vibration patterns. And wow, what is this? You have to remember, this is 1970. Yes, yes. I, my first experience at that conference, I felt exactly the same. That's why I'm laughing. I'm going, what the hell are they talking about? What language are they speaking? So I'm, I'm yeah. totally getting it. Yeah. So I sat next to a young woman. It looked like she was about my age, and she said she was a speech pathologist. So we struck up a conversation, and we were looking at these slides. And I said to her, "What's what's that?" And she said, "Oh, that's the larynx." I said, "What are those white things?" "Oh, those are your vocal cords." <laughs> "Oh, vocal cords! Wow, wow!" <laughs> and what what does that mean? Oh, she said, "Well, that's a chart that shows how the voice is making you know acoustic." Uh, spectrum. I said, acoustic, what? <laughs> so 
she was like my first exposure. And I, I was able to, to ask her some questions. She was very patient. And I came away thinking, wow, I don't, I don't know anything. I don't mm-hmm. know. I've been seeing for how many years? 20 something years. And I don't know a thing. Nothing. Yes. Yes. But I realized, okay, these people are talking about something real. And they're not talking about, imagine the sound is coming out of your nose like an elephant's trunk, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Or I had one teacher say to me, now the sound should be wider than your cheekbones. So you must make it wider than your cheekbone. Is that the craziest thing you were told? Oh, no. Plenty more other (laughs) wacko things. But I closed my eyes and I pictured, uh, okay, wider than my cheekbones and, and then sing. So whatever that was, oh, no, dear, that wasn't it. So then, I look, you know, I'm looking back at that and I think, who can learn anything that way? Yes. And so when I was finally able to get enough information from uh, reading whatever was available, now this is prior to, there were no, there was no internet. You had to go to the library. You had to find a book you could read that made sense. Then you, if you had questions, I didn't have a professor. I had to go wait until I saw somebody at the conference and say, can I ask you a question? Could mm-hmm. you tell me exactly what this means? Mm. And so I spent 10 years uh, in between the, the symposium, which was once a year, trying to get information from books or magazines. And then when I would go to the symposium, I would be like a, a, a raving, cr- crazy person because anybody that was friendly, I'd say, oh, can I ask you a question? Oh, could you, could you explain this to me? Oh, I saw your presentation. Were you saying that? And they were kind. They were explaining things to me. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to the workshop sessions, which they still have a day where various people teach different kinds of singing and the speech pathologists work with patients and sometimes the doctors do presentations of an exam. I would go to these workshop presentations and some of them were done by the Juilliard faculty, you know, very well known. Yes. And they were, they were just awful. Yeah. And it was the same thing. There was this woman who was a faculty. She was an older woman, very, very well known. And she had this poor student. He was up in front of the room full of people there. And she says to him, relax, relax. <gasps> Don't you know you're not relaxed? And I thought, geez, oh my God, who that's... could be relaxed when somebody's yelling at you like that? I know, right? And so she says, I want you to lean over, fall over forward, and you just breathe. And then she's pushing on his back. And I said to her, I thought, well, you don't have to be a psychologist to think this is not going to help him relax. <laughs> and then I went and watched one of the teachers who was a work, he was a Broadway cabaret specialist. So I thought, oh, good. Let me go and see that. That's really what I'm interested in. And he's working with this person and he's telling her, to just talk and sing at the same time. And I could see she's struggling. And I'm thinking, well, she doesn't really understand what to do with that as as an instruction. She's classical. She's not used to speaking and singing in the same mode. And I walked out of that session and I thought, I know I'm only 29, but I know better than what I just saw. Just by common sense. Yes. This is not good enough. Mm -hmm. And so that made me (laughs) very angry. So what, when are we talking here? I'm still like around um, 79, 80. Maybe. Really? Wow. Okay. Okay. And so I decided that I would go every year to the symposium and I would go to all these classes. And 
uh, in the meantime, I was still reading and I was still carrying on. And then into the 80s, I would go every year, talk to people. I began to understand a lot more. And I was still teaching and not so much performing anymore, but doing a lot of teaching and attending conferences for singing teachers. And <laughs> I remember one, one year the Voice Foundation was not in New York. It was in Denver. It was just the one time it was not here uh, before it moved to Philadelphia, where it is now. And this guy was, he was working with a classical baritone. And my ex-husband is a classical baritone. And I knew this repertoire because of him. Mm-hmm. And the teacher is banging on the piano going, you're not listening to the note. You're not listening to the note. And I'm thinking, well, the man is singing very difficult classical aria. He's got to hear the note. That's not the problem. The problem was the guy's throat was very tight and he was struggling to reach the note. So he was slightly flat. Yes. His throat was tight. Yes. So <laughs> I was sitting there with all these people taking notes and the poor man is struggling and I just lost it. And I raised my hand and I said, excuse me, how do you know he can't hear the note? Did you ask him? And and then he said, oh, no, no, it's it's just fine. You know, everybody gave me dirty looks. Of course. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I said, I, I just, you know, he said, it's fine, dear. We're here to share all opinions. So he then had the young man sing an aria. And when he was in the music, all of those problems he had went away. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I wanted to say, oh, well, certainly like has a new larynx just because now he's singing music and he doesn't have those problems. Or was the problem what you were instructing him to do that his throat was tight in the first place? Mm. And again, that was when I thought afterwards that this is just just doesn't work. And I actually went back home and wrote a letter complaining. This is not I didn't pay a lot of money and travel all the way out to Denver, which it, for me at that time was an extremely huge experience. To yes. listen to people yes. teaching yes. who don't know what they're doing. Yes. So did you write to Robert Sadilov? No, I wrote to Dr. Gould because Dr. Gould was still in charge of the time. Okay. <laughs> Robert James Gould was the man who started the Voice Foundation. But as I as they were going on and I began to talk to people and know people, I think it was probably in like 1986 that Dr. Sadilov began to take over. And one of the first things I... Uh, when I, I was speaking to him, I said, you know, if you if you would ever like somebody to talk about music theater, I would be really honored if you would consider me. And he said, OK. He said, why don't you teach for the workshops next year? So that following year was the first time I was uh, presenting in the workshops. And was it the first time they had a musical theater representative? No. Uh-huh. Okay, That's they'd... why this other guy, the guy that I had seen the first guy that was cabaret music theater, who really was a very nice man. I didn't know what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And um, while I was demonstrating, Dr. Sundberg came in and was watching me teach. And then afterwards, he said, "Oh, that was very interesting what you're doing. I have never seen this. He said, you know, if you ever come to Stockholm, you should say I will do some research with you. And so wow. I, I knew by then I had been attending the symposium for like, 12 or 13 years, I knew who Dr. Sundberg was. We all know him. (laughs) Yes. So I went home and I called uh, somebody in Copenhagen who was someone I knew who did singing. And I said, hey, can you make a workshop for me in like November? She said, yeah. So she cooked up a workshop for me in Denmark, in Copenhagen. And I was able to call Dr. Sundberg and say, guess what, Dr. Sundberg, I am going to be close by. I'm going to be in Copenhagen. 
you said you would be interested in having me come to your lab. Is that still true? And he said, yeah, you could come maybe in November. I said, <laughs> yes. I said, I can do that. So that's what happened. I taught the workshop in Copenhagen <laughs> and I took the ferry over to Aarhus, which now oh, they yeah. have a bridge, but then it was a boat. Yes. And um, he spent five days studying my throat. Just me. Really? Uh-huh. And so what he was had, he doing? Was it like stroboscopy? Or, yeah, it what? was a nasal stroboscopy. Mm-hmm. And I was going, well, I was, what he saw me do was I was talking about singing like a, a classical singer. And then I would, you know, go, go to a belty place. And then sort of mix was in. Well, he had never seen anybody do that before. He would, that was completely unknown to him. He was only he was used to working only with classical singers, and at that time, that's all anybody did was classical singers. So we spent a lot of time going in and out of classical or head register, and then belty chest, and some mix back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it, I stayed in his house, and I lived with his family. That's and incredible. I had. A, pri- a private tutoring with Johann Sundberg for five days. That is incredible. Uh-huh. And so I was able to ask all kinds of questions. And I had his book and I would say, Dr. Sundberg, I don't understand this page. What does this mean? And he would tell me. Uh-huh. So by the time I came back, I really understood not only what was in the book, but what I was doing. And it really gave me confidence to say, okay, now I know what I'm talking about. And then I had seen the inside of my throat going back and forth in all these different sounds. And I could see that each one of them was a different configuration inside. So I thought, well, it's not like it's all the same. Everybody had always said, oh, classical training will prepare you for anything you want to sing. And they still say that. Yeah, of course they do. But of course, (laughs) we know that that. (laughs) if you go to the opera house and you then Mm. take these opera singers and ask them to sing Rent, they can't. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. So if that were true, why can't they? Shouldn't they be able to do, shouldn't they be able to sing any kind of music? No, they can't. So that's just false. And so when I understood that, then as I was teaching and I was working with higher level people all the time, you know, more and more professionals all the time, I also began to learn more about the styles and about the demands of the styles. And yes, people sent me people. So I, when I was continuing to be uh, in the workshops, some people who were attending the symposium saw me and said, oh, um, we would love for you to come and be our keynote speaker in our statewide conference in Virginia. And I said, oh, that would be lovely. So I went and I did a masterclass for the statewide conference. And then two of the women who were at that conference came and said to me, gee, we really like what you're doing. Could you come and teach at our school? And I said, sure, I'd love to do that. So they made arrangements for me to come and teach the a couple of master classes with their music theater students. And by then, there were a number of schools that had begun music theater degree programs. Yes. So there were, there were finally programs that combined singing and acting and dancing in a degree. Mm-hmm. And that school was Shenandoah Conservatory uh, yes. in Chester, Virginia. Yeah, and that was where I went four times. And... Um, I was working with the undergrads, uh, mostly there. And the dean of the conservatory came to me one day and she said, you know, we really like what you're doing and it's not like what other people do. Can you write a course for 
other teachers. Maybe you could do during the summer. And I think they went back to that butterfly feeling. Marissa, you know that same feeling? Yes. Yes. The butterflies flying information. Yes. I don't really know. I said, I mean, this is what I do, but I don't know if anybody else would want to do this. Yes. She said, well, would you try? And I said, yeah, I'll try. So I spent the whole year working on the materials. And I, what I did was I went back in my mind and I, every time I did a masterclass, wherever it was, I got the same questions over and over and over. Mm, the same question. Yes. What's, what is belting? And how do you belt? And what's the difference between this breathing and that breathing? And what, why do we have to sing like this way over that and that way over here? And, so I just answered the questions by writing the course materials and just saying, well, okay, here's the information based on my life experience. And um, in 2002, I did the first course in July and I was terrified, just terrified because I thought maybe I'd have 10 people come, maybe 15. But then the next thing was people registered was 20 and the college said, well, how many do you want? And I said, I don't know. I said, well, can you handle 25? I said, I guess. And then can you handle 30? Can you handle 35? And I thought, oh, my gosh. Mm. So I ended up with 60 people. And I thought, how am I going to teach 60 people for five days in a row for, from nine to five? I, 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 how? Oh, oh. And some of these people had doctoral degrees. And I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be, they're going to really... I don't know. They're going to throw tomatoes at me for sure. Yes, (laughs) yes. But it just goes to show that by then, so we're 2002. Now you created the term CCM in around 2000. So 2002, there was already talk of CCM. And by then people must have, you must have inspired curiosity within the singing voice community and those people who were probably thinking what you were thinking this music has to have its own training system Mm. were probably so hungry by then for what you were going to deliver and you would have been the only person out there that had any answers for them well the the um the conference that was given by the new york singing teachers association in conjunction with mount sinai medical center in the year 2000 was called something like singing teachers in the new millennium. Okay. And I was the opening speaker and I had just done some research in 1999 with Dr. Ingo Tietze, mm-hmm. who was also a very well-known voice scientist. Yes. Yes. Uh, who was investigating the origins of vibrato in singers. So when I was with Dr. Tietze, I spent four days with him too. And, you know, got to ask him all kinds of questions. We talked a lot about every kind of singing thing, but life too. Yeah. And um, they stuck electrodes in my vocal cords. Oh my gosh. So I had, they had a medical doctor and I had my throat had a hole in it where they put the wires. Oh, the electrodes. And is so, that an um, E-E- E-E-G? Is that yeah, what that is? Huh? Yes. Okay. E-E-G. Right. Yeah. So uh, I had three holes on one side and four holes on the other side where they were trying to put the electrodes on either the cricothyroid or the thyroretinoid while I was making sound. Mm-hmm. And um, you could literally see the wire sticking out of my oh. throat. Oh, my God. And uh, from my inside the larynx. 
And I did, I did this test that Dr. Chitza had thought of, and I was asked to sing specific pitches repetitively while they turned up the juice on my vocal cords. <gasps> <laughs> and so when they did the cricothyroid muscle, the head register sound, I was able to go all the way through the whole test. And at some point, I was, oh, I was also being asked to sing without vibrato. And so then past like a seven hertz, uh, the vibrato began to show up, but I wasn't doing it. Mm-hmm. The machine was doing it. It's just, okay. So when they did the, the thyroretinoid muscle, I'll never forget, the, the electrical stimulation ran all the way from my right eye socket up here, down through my nose, down through my throat, into my neck and into my shoulder. Was that uncomfortable? And, yeah. <laughs> and I asked Dr. Smith, I said, he was the laryngologist doing this. I said, why do I feel this all the way up and down inside? And he said, oh, it's, re- it's referred nerve stimulus. I said, wow, it's really strong. He said, yeah, it could be. So as I went through the same test, when they were turning up the amount of electricity that was going through, um, past halfway, I couldn't phonate because if I tried to make sound, I would choke. I just would choke. Oh my so they had to stop. But having finished that as an experience, you know, with Dr. Tito, I was also, I did it because it was a way for me to learn more. You know, I wanted to know what happens when they electronically stimulate your vocal folds. Oh my gosh. And so I was willing to go where I had to go, wherever it is, to find out more, to learn more. And when Dr. Simberg published the first re- the research that he did with me, uh, which was published first in Sweden and then published in the Journal of Voice, it was a breakthrough paper because no one had ever studied somebody who could sing in so many different ways. And it really sort of opened up the idea that there's more than one way to sing. And then my statement in 2000 was, I'm not going to say non-classical anymore. I'm going to say... Contemporary commercial music. So, because yeah, sorry, we don't we don't want non-classic. No, no, we yes, exactly. Uh, So, in what forum or in what context did you introduce that descriptor? Well, that was at the conference, the science, no, the science teachers in the new millennium, Mm -hmm. and so there were like three hundred people there, and. Dr. They, was there. Were they singing teachers or Most members? Mostly singing teachers, but of, there were some medical people. So there were a few speech pathologists, some medical doctors. The Mount Sinai's Gravesheit Medical Center is a endowed center within the hospital complex, uh, which was uh, set up by money left from the estate of Dr. Grabscheid. And he was a laryngologist for many, many years here in New York. And um, he treated just about every famous singer that there was. Mm. So this is a dedicated facility within the hospital, primarily aimed at voice patients. So it was a combination of the New York Singing Teachers Association Mm. and Mount Sinai, which I was the opening speaker. And I stood up and said, this is what I'm going to do. And I got a lot of pushback at first. So you got up there, sorry, and you said, okay, from this point on, we are not calling this music non-classical or music outside of classical, we are going to call it contemporary commercial music styles. Yeah. I said, I am not going to any longer when somebody says, well, what do you teach? Oh, I teach non-classical styles. 
I said, you know, if somebody said, well, I teach non-medicine or I teach non-law, I said, that would be in- incredibly stupid. Yeah. What does and that it mean? makes no it sense. No yeah. sense. So I said, I'm not going to define what I do, but what I don't do. So this is what I'm going to call it. And I'm not going to use non-classical anymore. And so the word went out that I had created this terminology. And then when I was at Shenandoah, the first year I talked, I called it music theater, vocal pedagogy. But then the second year, I called it contemporary commercial music. And I named the institute, the Contemporary Commercial Music Vocal Pedagogy Institute. And a lot of people said, what is that? What is contemporary commercial music? What is that? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, it's the new way we're describing the music we used to call non-classical. And I made analogies with people that would object. I said, well, here in the United States, if you say contemporary music, you could mean either classical music or other styles of music that are the composers are alive and it's happening right now. If you say commercial music, it generally means the music you would hear in a commercial venue. So like a a club or Mm. a theater. Or on the radio. Or on the radio or television as a commercial. Yes. I said, so, you know, the two terms together don't have a previous history. And that's why they need to be together. Because one or the other does have a history, but the two terms together don't. And then people said, well, but there's there's other CCMs. I said, yeah, I know. We here have the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music, which is a very well-known CCM. And we also have contemporary Christian music, yes, which is yes. a CCM. That's the and one. I said, but yeah. you know, if you by then we have the internet, I said, if you go online and put in the initial CCM, you'll get forty-five organizations that are CCM: Connecticut Council of Municipalities, yes, all kinds of other things like that. I said, yes. so what's one more? It's one more. That's all. One more for the so, road. Yeah, the reason that was important was because it broke the glass ceiling in the mindset of people who said, well, there's the real music, which is classical music. And then there's that other stuff that's not really anything. It's just non-musical. Yes. And so I'm saying, well, excuse me, but that's just ridiculous. And the music that came out of Europe from the 1500s to the 20th century has its own validity. But some of the music that arose mostly in the United States came from the local people who created their own music in church or in the community or in their families. And a lot of that music was influenced by the people who came here and were enslaved. So the African and Caribbean peoples who were brought here brought very little with them, but they couldn't take away their music. Mm -hmm. Their soul. Mm. That came with them Mm -hmm. because it came from their heads, their hearts. Yes, yes. So while as music was used, one of the few things that the enslaved people were allowed to keep was their music, which they they still had to hide, but they would go into the woods and they had little small places where they would meet and they would sing. And so that came up from the bottom of the society all the way it bubbled up. And then at at the beginning of the 20th century, when we began to have the very first microphones and the very first movies with sound, suddenly millions of people could hear music instead of just hundreds of people. And the music became very popular. So we had early jazz and then we had the movies 
and the vaudeville people became well known. So it has different roots. It has different origins than music, which came from the church or from the aristocracy and the nobility and sort of filtered down from on high. And I said, you know, if we look at this music, the only thing that's different is in each country, there is folk music, which is endemic to that culture. So, you know, the folk music of Scandinavia is different than the folk music of Spain. Yes. And here we have folk music in different places that have different traditions. But other Mm. than that, we have the music that came from the people. And here in the United States, we have a very famous painter whose name is Grandma Moses. Right. Grandma, Grandma Moses paintings now sell for millions of dollars. She was one of the very first painters who was recognized in the art world for being an untrained artist who was very, very, very good. So she would sit in her farm and she would paint the area around her farm. And she painted very detailed paintings. And somebody saw them and go, wow, these are really, really wonderful. So she was brought into the art world and people began to celebrate her work and her and she became more well known. And so she was, in a sense, a folk artist as a painter. And we all know, you know, Andy Warhol was also considered, oh, he's just a pop person. He doesn't, what does he know? Tomato cans. And and his painting of, or his print of, of Marilyn Monroe just sold at one of the big galleries here two weeks ago for $190 million. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. So, yeah. So in other words, the value of folk anything or the music of the people was gradually becoming more and more important. And at some point it passed the classical world. So, you know, classical was going down and becoming less well-known yes. and less universal. Yes. And the pop music was exploding all over the world. And especially in the 50s and 60s, it became, you know, rock and roll became an international thing. So my point of view was, well, why do we have to try to force gospel singers and rock singers into this mode of what was worked for, for Mozart and for Scarlatti or even for Puccini and Verdi? How, mm. how, do they, how are they the same? Yes. And so, as you know, it's not gone. It's still not gone. Yes. That, oh, dear, if you learn to sing classically, you can sing anything, you know. <laughs> That's not gone. But there's, it's harder and harder for people to say that and get away with it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Voice and Beyond. I hope you enjoyed it as now is an important time for you to invest in your own self-care, personal growth and education. Use every day as an opportunity to learn and to grow so you can show up feeling empowered and ready to live your best life. If you know someone who will also be inspired by this episode, please be sure to copy and paste the link and share it with them. Or share it on social media and use the hashtag A Voice and Beyond. I promise you, I am committed to bringing you more inspiration and conversations just like this one every week. 
And if you would like to help me, please rate and review this podcast and cheer me on by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcast right now. I would also love to know what it is that you most enjoyed about this episode and what was your biggest takeaway. Please take care and I look forward to your company next time on the next episode of A Voice and Beyond.